Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring American hoodoo practice. My guest is Dr. Paul J. Leslie, who is a professor of psychology at Aiken College in Aiken, South Carolina, where he has a private psychotherapy practice. He is the author of Low Country Shamanism, an exploration of the magical and healing practices of coastal Carolina, and Georgia. He is also the author of several books on psychotherapy, including The Art of Creating a Magical Session and Shadows in the Session, The Presence of the Anomalous in Psychotherapy. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you having me. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Yes. And your exploration of the you know, hoodoo practices, uh, sometimes called uh, uh, conjure or conjuring or the uh, practice of root doctors in the American Southeast is, is really fascinating. And maybe a, a good beginning of this exploration is to share with our viewers the distinction between hoodoo and voodoo. Okay. Uh- Hoodoo, at least the way it's practiced uh, in the area that, that I'm from, is a, um, as the title of my book talks about, is a shamanic, magical, and, and healing practice. It's not really a religion, whereas voodoo has a lot of those same qualities, but there's a religious uh, connection there. And a lot of it is just due to... Um, the uh, powers that were in charge of the uh, unfortunate slaves brought to the country. Where I'm from in the the coastal Carolinas and Georgia, those groups of people, uh, the slave owners and the culture, were predominantly Protestant. So when people were brought over, they were kind of uh, forced to adopt Protestant beliefs. Whereas a lot of the the French who owned slaves in in Haiti and places like that were, were coming from a Catholic background. So so what the uh, the slaves were able to do was to hide a little more of the religious uh, beliefs in the uh, different spirits in the form of Catholic saints, and it, and so they were able to hold on to more of the religious component of of the um, the beliefs they have. So uh, I will I will kind of define hoodoo as a pragmatic way of of helping and healing, mm-hmm. as opposed to helping and healing from a religious perspective. Now I. Uh, could be wrong about this, but I'm also under the impression that the uh, hoodoo culture uh, is derivative quite a bit from the Gullah people uh, yeah. of Africa. From the, It came from Angola, whereas uh, I think voodoo, like Candomblé or uh, Umbanda, is more derivative of the Yoruba traditions from Africa. Uh, there's, there's a lot of that, and at the same time, there's, there's always a blending yeah, because uh, you know, with with uh, the slaves coming in from from different areas, coming into different ports. One of the main ports on the East Coast was Charleston, South Carolina, where it's a couple hours from where I live, and a lot of the West Central Africa uh, uh, 
slaves brought in kind of came in there. But then over time, we do have a, a mingling of different uh, regions and, and perspectives. But a lot of what I found in my research is that there's some common threads that, that are more alike uh, than dissimilar. Mm-hmm. Now, you have engaged in an exploration of the hoodoo practices, largely as a psychotherapist. Right. I, and I want to be uh, clear for those watching. I, I'm not uh, somebody who practices hoodoo, what I am is more of a a researcher because I found that this practice is so prevalent where I am, kind of hidden but prevalent, I needed to understand uh, where this was coming from. When I first moved to South Carolina, I remember I was in a supervision group, uh, clinical supervision, where everyone would share cases that they were concerned about or needing feedback. And in this one case, uh, there was a, a therapist who said that she had a, a man who was suffering from what we would clinically call uh, panic attacks along with a generalized anxiety disorder. So he's always anxious. And he told her that he felt the problem was that someone had put the root on him. And they're just talking about that, and I never heard that. So I was like, well, hold on, hold on, what what does that mean? Somebody put the root. And she said, well, it's kind of like witchcraft. It's a a root is a curse. And I I, I didn't quite understand that. And said, well, there are these groups of people who uh, believe in this hoodoo conjure, and uh, they uh, believe that when they have uh, mental health or physical problems, there's a big possibility that someone has put this this curse on them. And she was trying to help this guy through the framework of traditional therapy, was getting nowhere. And so the only advice I had is like, well, if he's, his belief is so entrenched in this, you might want to find somebody who shares a similar belief and can remove the root. And But it just got my mind going, where does this come from? And, you know, I'd never really heard of it. I heard of voodoo, and I instantly go to, you know, New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, but to think that there was all this uh, hoodoo culture in the, in the coastal Carolinas and Georgia was totally new to me. So I started uh, looking around, asking different people about, uh, you know, this. And, of course, a lot of people, uh, the, the response is kind of like, hoodoo doesn't exist and it's bad. It's like, well, <laughs> what is it, you know? Uh, so I started talking to uh, different people who led me to different people. And, indeed, there is a, a, uh, a strong... Uh, belief in uh, kind of African-centric uh, spirituality, which is the base, along with the, these Protestant beliefs. But because uh, it has been so ridiculed over the years, a lot of people keep those beliefs to themselves. So it, it's a, it is a hidden uh, culture in which uh, if you feel there's something wrong with you and your medical doctor can't help you, you will go to someone that we call a root doctor. Now, the, the term root came out of when the slaves were uh, uh, having medical issues. Unless it was something very serious, the overseer rarely called the doctor because, you know, that's money. Uh, so if a slave is going to die, they may call the doctor. So for common ailments and things like that, they would uh, kind of have to heal themselves. And generally, there is um, one or more people in the slave community who are good at herbal medicines and, and other uh, healing practices. So 
plants and roots they would get to try and, and use for medicinal purposes. So that term, the root doctor, applied not just to an herbalist, but also somebody who was a magician who could perform magic and do certain spells, spells to protect you, to, uh, to give you hope. I, I think the context here is so important. If you were slave before uh, the Civil War, uh, there, there's no hope, really. You need something to, to give you hope. And, and they would utilize these uh, root doctors in their slave community as a way to, to feel a sense of control in a situation where they had no control. And I, I felt this, this has continued throughout our history, and I think it's a very important thing to pay attention to rather than to just, oh, it's a bunch of superstitious nonsense. And, and let's just pretend it is superstition. It's still a part of a, a vibrant culture that had to be so resilient in, in times that, that you and I can never imagine uh, having gone through. So that, that really kind of led me to investigate more. Uh, and is this something that a therapist uh, in their communities where this is, might need to be more aware of? So in your investigations, I uh, gather you went to the library. You looked at the anthropological literature. Yeah, I started there, uh, but then I started uh, trying to find people. And this was this was the tricky part. Uh, the the true root doctors generally, not all of them, but generally don't put out a, a shingle. And I had to uh, do a lot of investigation, uh, knock on doors where. Um, Maybe the reception was polite, but a little cool. You know, there's a places off the coast of uh, Carolina, we call it, you know, the Sea Islands, where, um, as you mentioned, the Gullah. These are, the Gullah are uh, the descendants of African slaves who have had uh, their own culture, a beautiful culture that's kind of a, a blending of African influences along with, you know, the, the influences they learned here uh, in the United States. And they, they kind of have their own language, the, you know, uh, a lot of fascinating ways of, of seeing the world. Now, here comes this white guy. And I'm knocking on doors. And of course, I've got to get a cool response. And I wasn't really open, I guess, to it mentally. I was kind of, kind of detached from it, more of like an anthropological scientist to investigate. Mm -hmm. And it, one day it occurred to me, I need to have somebody to give me better introductions who is involved. And I need to be more open to it and not be so skeptical. Just kind of go in and, and, you know, why is this important? I want to learn from you and just, you know, I don't want to learn your, uh, take what you know and, and ridicule it. I, I really need to, uh, coming with a, a degree of humility. And then once that happened, it's funny, all the doors started opening. I had a colleague who, uh, told me that uh, not only was her grand, I think grandfather a root doctor, but she, uh, her uncle used to date the daughter of the most famous root doctor in the, in the Southeast. And there's all this family connection. So doors started opening. And I wonder sometimes if maybe my over, uh, enthusiasm, uh, to, you know, be, be objective in all of the, uh, kind of a, a, approach it in a scholarly manner, uh, and my lack of openness was the biggest barrier. Uh, so that, and, and then it just, people were, welcomed me in and it was wonderful. Well, you mentioned the most famous root doctor of the Southeast, uh, Doc Buzzard. Right, right. 
And uh, there's a, a lot of folklore around this this person. I think for our, the benefit of our viewers, uh, if we can talk about the life of Doc Buzzard, that will give them a real sense of what this uh, hoodoo community is about. Right. Yeah, Dr. Buzzard, his real name, the, and by the way, there are multiple people who have taken on that that name. Mm. Uh, and, and the reason we're saying uh, Doc Buzzard, uh, there are... Uh, since they're root doctors, they use the doctor title, but you'll notice a lot of times they will choose animals as kind of, and to me that's, it's very similar to some of the, the Native American where they embody certain, uh, uh, animal spirits and, and, and those things, which is kind of a shamanic tie-in there. But Dr. Buzzard's real name was Stephanie Robinson, and uh, he lived in the early part of the 20th century. He was the most famous uh, root doctor uh, in the way that uh, people who follow voodoo, uh, Marie Laveau, is the most famous voodoo practitioner, the, the voodoo queen of New Orleans. Well, Dr. Buzzard was uh, so famous that people from all over the country would come see him or would mail him money to ask him to take off curses or put on curses or just help me find my the, the love of my life, help, help me find uh, more money. And so they would, would send him money. He became very, very wealthy. And uh, I, I want to kind of put into, uh, for a lot of people, Dr. Buzzard was a very terrifying figure. But he also did a lot of really good things. I mean, for example, he was a philanthropist. That's something that a lot of people don't, talk about. He built several churches on uh, St. Helena Island, which is one of the islands off of uh, Beaufort, South Carolina, and he helped a lot of people. But he would also uh, show up in the courtroom when somebody had hired him to uh, maybe go protect their son who was, uh, you know, having to stand trial for uh, robbery or something, and he would come in with these... Um, uh, uh, round, uh, blue glasses and, and just have this appearance of, uh, of, of having a magical effect on the trial and would try to sway the jury through magic and, and these kind of things. So for, for some of the population, he was a bit of a pariah, but to others, he was not only somebody that was there to help people heal, but to, to save people from uh, racial injustice and, uh, to, to help people, uh, basically live Live happier lives. So you get conflicting stories. If, I, if we're going to talk about Dr. Buzzard, I have to talk about the battle between Dr. Buzzard and uh, Sheriff McTeer. Now, uh, uh, McTeer was uh, sheriff, the youngest sheriff, I think, in South Carolina history and, and probably been the sheriff of Beaufort County for many years. And McTeer grew up all around this, this culture uh, of, of uh, the Gullah. And so he figured out that if he was going to be an effective sheriff, he had to enter the, the world of uh, of these people. So he became uh, pretty well-versed in hoodoo and even uh, gave the impression that he was a hoodoo doctor, a root doctor. Well, this led him in opposition to Dr. Buzzard. And there is a, a much uh, folklore about the psychic battles between uh, Sheriff McTeer and Dr. Buzzard. And they went back and forth and forth and back. I remember one story was McTeer came in one day to find his desk had 
powdered all over it. And basically somehow Dr. Buzzard had gotten into his office and had done some ritual there to try and, uh, you know, change the, the course of some investigation. Eventually the psychic battles ended uh, when unfortunately Dr. Buzzard's son was killed in a car wreck. And he attributed that to McTeer's magic. So he went to see McTeer and said, you know, uncle, you win. This, you've gone hardcore. You know, let's call it a truce. And the funny thing is, in later life, the two of them actually became friends. And I think they kind of learned from each other. McTeer learning more from Dr. Buzzard. But Dr. Buzzard was a, was a healer, uh, a, a champion of his people. And in a time in which, you know, there was no internet, uh, telephone only, you didn't see things like this in, in print, his influence just spread throughout the African-American community throughout the Southeast, even up into New York. I, I am assuming he had something like a mail order business. Yeah, it, it, not so much that you would see an ad in the paper. It's just somehow they would find out, you know, his address. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point to where uh, I was told that when he would go to the uh, post office, he'd come out with all these envelopes and he'd sit in the post office and he'd open an envelope. And if it had a check in it, like someone wrote a personal check, he'd tear it up and throw it in the trash. He only wanted cash because he didn't want to be tied to, you know, you have a record of everything. So he was doing so well, he's just tearing it, you know, to, to I guess, to protect himself. But, uh, yeah, the people would, would write to him all over, come to see him. Uh, uh, relatives of his said people would, there'd be cars from all over the country in, in, the, in the front yard sometimes when they'd come to visit, seeking his, his help as a, a spiritual counselor, if you will. It sort of reminds me of the attention that some of the Filipino psychic surgeons attracted to themselves. You could, yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And uh, uh, even though they, uh, the root doctors didn't partake in that, a lot mm -hmm. of the psychological aspects of that are very mm -hmm. similar. Right? And uh, I gather that McTeer eventually uh, had Doc Buzzard arrested for practicing medicine without a license. Yeah, and uh, it was... Uh, it wasn't strictly uh, McTeary. I don't think he was the one who started, but being the sheriff, you've got to, to do that. Yeah, and they, they kept trying to, to go after Dr. Buzzard, and they could never get him. Now, there were other people in that community, a, a guy, I think, uh, if I'm rem remembering this correctly, Dr. Eagle, uh, who uh, was uh, practicing uh, without a license, which, as a little side note, Dr. Eagle, uh, his common-law wife, was uh, Minerva. And if anyone's ever read uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, uh, Minerva figures prominently in that book. So it's a real person, and she was a, a, a root doctor. Some people said she was schizophrenic, but she had a, a lot of, uh, if we can use the term, mojo. And so she was the common-law wife of Dr. Eagle, who had some psychic battle with another guy who wanted to be Minerva's boyfriend. So uh, people like, uh, and there's also Dr. Bug. Now, Dr. Bug uh, was someone who would give a special um, uh, serum to people who wanted to get out of the draft because when they take it that morning, when they'd listen to the heart, it would skip a little bit. And uh, so, well, you're unfit for the military. And then they cracked down on, on him. Well, uh, Dr. Buzzard, getting back to him, never served any time. 
Mm. And uh, it just kind of went away, and 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 he is uh, his grave now uh, is uh, very few people know where it is, and it's considered a, a sacred territory. Mm. And, and and finding his grave is is discouraged. But yeah, there's all all these kind of uh, battles, and and some of my uh, colleagues see it not just as a battle of of beliefs, but you know there's a clear racial divide during that time and uh, kind of viewing it a battle between white and black. And so there's all these kind of socioeconomic uh, aspects to it as well. Well, I found uh, one of the chapters in your book particularly interesting. Uh, Doc Coyote, who you visited, was a, a Caucasian practitioner of hoodoo, which I, I presume maybe there's more of that today than there once was, but still quite rare. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was, because uh, most of the people I talked to and then I profile are African Americans. And then uh, someone said, well, you do need to talk to this guy. And uh, so I, I did uh, speak with Doc Cody, who is a cross, when you see him, at least when I did, it was a cross between, you know, I have an image of how a, a white root doctor is supposed to look. It looked like a cross between Johnny Cash and something from a Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> and uh, I mean, a very nice guy, but he he's uh, from the South and well-versed in the occult, but it was just drawn to uh, what's in his backyard. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing that I found is a lot of people are looking for uh, magic and healing, and we don't sometimes look in our in our backyard. And he told this wonderful story about uh, to really to take the mantle up to become a root doctor by visiting the grave of a gentleman named uh, Jim Jordan in North Carolina. And Jim Jordan was a very famous root doctor during the early part of the 20th century, so much so famous that uh, medical doctors, white medical doctors, if they couldn't get anywhere with a patient, they would send uh, them to Jim Jordan. And yet again, Jim Jordan, another philanthropist, he would pay people's mortgages off. He would, you know, pay people's cars off, help people who were on hard times and crediting the magic uh, and the healing uh, work he did. So when Doc Coyote went to his grave, he had, I'm going to use my words, a maybe a religious experience mm -hmm. for him to take on the mantle and move forward uh, being a, a real, true uh, root doctor. And, and as I recall from your description, that grave was also relatively hidden. He had yeah. to get permission from the relatives. Right. So, so there was some... You could say almost initiations to get to the grave, yeah. but when when he got there, uh, he engaged in uh, some form of uh, an attempt to communicate with the spirit. Right now, I, I know in many traditions the graves of saints and holy people are considered uh, special, and this is particularly true amongst the Hoodoo people that graves are of, of significance. Yes, absolutely. You know, when you said he had to go to the family. Uh, he said it in such a way, he said, I, I talked to a relative, and after they lowered the shotgun that they had, or who's this person coming on my property, he said it was, it was fine. But, uh, yeah, that, that connection, <clears throat> excuse me, that connection with the, um, the grave, the deceased, I mean, ancestor uh, worship, ancestor reverence is so uh, important in that culture. 
and uh, the, the, just the, the act of how to, to, to lay out the body after one has died, how the body's buried, uh, certain rituals to keep the spirits from following one home. Um, sometimes people try to go in and take what, what the... Um, what they call in the hoodoo world goofer dust, the G-O-O-F-E-R dust, which is basically dirt from the grave of somebody. And hopefully you'll, you'll take the magical qualities of that person with you in, in the graveyard dust that you can use in your own uh, uh, rituals. Now, now goofer, uh, what I, I found is it's like a, 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 a kind of a slang taken off Kufa, which is an African, I'm not sure which dialect, meaning ghost. Mm. So we can say it's like ghost dirt. And, and so if you wanted somebody, for example, if you wanted to become wealthy, and you found that there a millionaire, multimillionaire in town had recently died, you would sneak in one night and try to take some of the dirt uh, to, to use. Maybe you could grab the essence of this person, uh, financial uh, intelligence, somebody who's good in love. Or somebody who maybe wasn't good. Maybe you would use that as if you wanted to put a curse on somebody. You might want to take the dirt from that person uh, uh, and, and use it, which is another reason why, as, I, as you mentioned, Dr. Buzzard, Jim Jordan, some of these graves, uh, there may be a reason why they're kind of hidden because everybody's, you know, who's into that may be wanting to take a piece to use that power for themselves for good. And maybe not so good. Well, I, I suppose one of the fundamental principles of hoodoo is is the belief in spirits and the belief that the root doctor uh, is not just working with herbs, but is working with the spirits. Right, right. And that's why I, when I was doing this research, I really connected in my mind that what we have here is our own backyard shamans. So I went and I read uh, Eliade's classic text on shamanism, and there's debate now about you know how he uh, put all the characteristics of shamans. But I said, okay, for so many years this has been the kind of the definitive work. So I went through each category that he listed, and I found that the root doctors were in every one of them. Mm -hmm. So you didn't need to go to, uh, if you're in, in, in South Carolina or Georgia, you don't need to go to uh, the the Southwest to find a shaman. You don't need to go to Tibet to find, they're in our own backyards. Things like, um, well, you are interfacing with uh, the spirits. And sometimes the spirits uh, tell you something to tell your, your, your client. Um, uh, the whole thing of vision quests, I mean, that happens in the Gullah community. Uh, there are people, there's a certain type of, uh, like a headband people wear. And when they're walking around with that headband, traditionally it was, okay, that's, it's almost like a little rope. That person's about to go on some quest to commune. Uh, with nature, with the ancestors, and and that um, using uh, the ability to to bridge that gap to go into the spirit world to bring back information, or even just for protection purposes. So there, it fit all these these categories, and um, it unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of been reduced to superstition. But I argue this is a vibrant, real shamanic culture that is so underground that uh, it tends to get uh, uh, forgotten. So, yeah, all that, that spiritual, uh, spiritual interaction. I'll tell you a quick story. When I went to see uh, one of these uh, uh, root doctors who I did not 
I met a lot of people that they would talk, but they'd say, now, I forbid you to, to print anything about me. Uh, and a lot of times I just heard no. Uh, Dr. Buzzard's uh, grandson, who is a root doctor um, in, in, uh, outside of Buford, was very respectful to tell me no. He didn't want to talk to me about uh, hoodoo because he was scared there, there could be some kind of repercussion. And it's a long story there. But I went and saw this, this one, um, one root doctor. And he's talking to me. He's just kind of quietly sitting there. And then he says, Dr. Leslie, the reason you came here is not the reason you came here. I just heard that I'm about to tell you something. And what I'm about to tell you is what you need to hear. And what he was saying is he had been supplied something. And to be quite honest, when he starts talking, you know, it's, it's hypnotic. You get, okay, oh my gosh, what he's... And I don't even remember what he was telling me. I was so taken back by it. But they go in and out of the spirit world, kind of like the... Um, it's much like the the psychics we see uh, or, or proclaimed psychics where they're talking to you. you. Go wait, wait, hold on. Your grandmother just told me that you know blah blah blah, and they're they're commonly in and out of the world. But you won't know sometimes that they're doing that unless you have been given an introduction and they feel that it's safe to talk to you. But yeah, it, it is it is an amazing uh, culture that that does spend adequate time in what they perceive as the spirit world and mm -hmm. the regular world. Well, as a parapsychologist, I assume that there's a mixture of uh, folklore, superstition, and authentic psi experiences going on. I, I would, would agree with that. I think there there's a lot of, I mean, just be blunt, there's a lot of placebo effect going on, certainly. Mm -hmm. But there's also got to be something a little more than just placebo, even if it is... Uh, uh, theatrics, uh, because if it didn't work for people, I mean, in this day and age, they'd stop going. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got medical doctors, we've got psychologists, psychotherapists. Uh, why would you go to the root doctor? Well, if it's cultural, that's one thing. But if this root doctor is not getting you uh, the, the results you want, you're not going to go back. Mm -hmm. So there's a perception of efficacy of the... Um, of the the practices of the treatment, you know, one of the things, Jeff, I did learn that uh, that helped me as a therapist, not to do root work and all that. I don't do that. But what it learned, uh, it really reinforced, and and I learned is that the interaction you have with a client, psychotherapy client, and the interaction if you're a root doctor with your uh, root client is similar in that you're creating an experience. And, and the experience sometimes is gentle and connective. Sometimes it's, you know, improvisational intense. And uh, in their case, sometimes it's frightening. But they're, it, it's changing the emotional state of the person as they are talking. So it is, uh, it is really uh, profound to me that they're not, they don't have the constraints that I think my field does in, in how they interact. So it, it taught me to loosen up a little more and uh, maybe go to places that I wouldn't have gone previously, but to really rely on what the client needs. Uh, so there is that element of, of performance, which, I mean, it's a, if you look at it as an art, art moves us. Art um, uh, I mean, that's the goal of art, to, to create a shift in our consciousness, if you will.
Well, you know, um, as I read your book, I thought there was one quality that stood out in your conversation with Doc Coyote. It's a quality you could find in, in theater. It's also a quality you find in in religion as as well. And he said it's not just about reading the lines or going through the ritual. It has to do with your state of mind while you're doing it, the ability to enter into a really profound state of focused intention. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and that's uh, where artists are in their zone. That That's mm-hmm. what they're doing. Uh, my, my dear friends, uh, Andy and Bernice Tate, who are also feature in the book, they are artists who are also hoodoo practitioners. And it's the same, they see it the same way that, that uh, Doc Coyote does. It's like, where are we putting our, our mind? And uh, if you're doing a ritual and you're just going through the motions, uh, it's not going to do anything. So the, the root doctor's job is not only have his or her mind, in the right place, the focus. They also want to get their client's mind. It's like it's got to be this co-creative process, much like good psychotherapy. It's mm-hmm. a co-creative. It's not just the therapist doing something to the client. They're creating an outcome together. So when the root doctor creates a root, what uh, um, in uh, voodoo and, and some of the other uh, uh, practices called the mojo, which is a little packet of, of of something that you carry with you to protect you or give you luck or, or or those kind of things. It is crucial that when they're creating that, and they have to be focused. I'm creating, not just going through the motions. I have to be sending out this intention. This is heal. This, this is healing. This is protection. This is for somebody for love. And then to get the client in such a state that I'm passing the intention to the client so that they are going away and it's almost more powerful because we're both in that state. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing for me in psychotherapy. If I don't have the the emotional state that there's hope and expectancy of change, I can't expect my client to bring that up mm-hmm. because if they had that, they wouldn't be coming to see me. So that intention is, and I think it's across the board, but that's the parallel I found. And, and yes, that is the most important thing to everyone I talk to. It's having that focus. Now, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of your work is encountering a, a lady, uh, Angel Hakim, I believe. Yes, yes. Who... Uh, came from a, a family with a long tradition of root doctors who is now uh, being trained as a psychotherapist. Yes. Uh, Angel uh, is uh, actually completing her doctorate in counselor education and supervision and, uh, being, as you say, being trained. Her father, um, uh, Walter Barnum Sr., I think, I, I don't know if it's William or Walter, so I apologize, uh, was a very well-known root doctor uh, in... Uh, Savannah, Georgia, and the, everyone called him Prophet. And Angel, uh, she shared, I was very honored, she shared a picture with me and allowed me to share it with other people uh, of him. And he had uh, this this bushy hair and bushy beard, but she said it, the hair was uh, uh, red, a little bit of red to it. And he was an imposing figure. And he was, uh, they called him Prophet because he was also involved in church. And uh, he drove this car, big uh, car around, painted like a yellow taxi cab with religious red religious symbols like crosses and Star David all over it. So you knew when he went around, you know, there's prophet. But he would have this presence to where if somebody was uh, giving him a hard time, he'd just look him in the eye and just, just you sh- I will 
turn you into a dog. And then people were just, you know, thinking he could do that. He had this, mm-hmm. this powerful presence. He also would travel up and down the coast, speaking at churches, doing what we would call medium uh, ship. And uh, Angel told me when she was a little girl, she and her father went to his mentor who lived in Rocky Ford, Georgia, a little town, who this lady, this old lady, which if I can say, interesting, the man goes to see a lady as the mentor. That's not uncommon in low country hoodoo uh, because women had so much power spiritually as well as men. So it's not just the, the male uh, uh, having having these positions. And she talks about this lady uh, just glowed all the time and, and weird phenomena like trees not being put by the... Um, in the wind, but trees would start to bend over like in unison when the lady was out there praying or doing her meditations. And Angel says she always grew up with this psychic ability, and she was born as uh, a lot of uh, people who later are identified as as shamans as the call is over the face when they're born. And uh, she kind of grew up in that and for many years uh, did a lot of uh, work. Uh, eventually, uh, I don't think her time in uh, Savannah was as fruitful as it is now because there's also that religious backlash from the other side of the tracks on these kind of things. But uh, And so she's now trying to combine the best of both worlds with the Western psychotherapy and her uh, training and uh, and mediumship mm-hmm. in, in hoodoo. Uh, and, and to me, that's very exciting. And whether I believe in that or not, if, if that's meeting a need of her clients, we need to, I think, sit back and go, okay, what's happening here? How, how can we bridge that gap instead of being so kind of uh, a barrier between those two fields? Mm-hmm. Well, um, we talked earlier about Sheriff McTeer, right. who on the one hand was uh, ha- engaged in a battle with Doc Buzzard, was right. uh, trying to bring him to uh, Western justice, American justice. On the other hand, had a reputation himself as a root doctor. Right. You have a very interesting story of, of a healing that was attributed to Sheriff McDear. Let me again set the stage. Here we have a young man mm-hmm. who has the largest county uh, in South Carolina at that time to oversee uh, with a very limited amount of resources. The Gala outnumbered at that time all the uh, Caucasians there. So if you're trying to keep both sides happy, you have to be very clever. And he spoke the Gala language. Yeah, yeah indeed, because he, he, he was brought up in that. So he figured, uh, you know, what what's working here? How can I um, utilize uh, the the culture. So he would do things like he would see that, like Dr. Buzzard wore these blue round sunglasses, uh, kind of like the John Lennon glasses, but this bright blue. And blue has a significant spiritual meaning in uh, in uh, African culture, West Central African culture. Blue meaning um, uh, spirits can't go across water. So it's a protection thing. So when he would bring someone in uh, to question them, if they were getting nowhere and this person was uh, Gullah or had a uh, had a belief in such things, Matir would walk in, sit down, put on the blue glasses and just start to try and talk. To, and, and the person then would, would get into this uh, kind of uh, uh, state as in he's got 
you know, it's like talking to Dr. Buzzard and was able to get, to, uh, get more information out of them. Um, I, I don't know if it's this particular story or not, but it, there's many of these where someone had uh, thought that they'd had a root put on them, and maybe they had. And so what McTeer did is uh, he, he had um, uh, basically to to apprehend someone who had put in uh, a root under the uh, the, uh, the um, and again, I want to be clear, root is like a little mojo bag. They, they snuck in and put a root underneath the house mm-hmm. and as a way to, to keep somebody, uh, feeling, uh, having a sense of, um, I think it was, and I might be mis- uh, remembering this wrong, some kind of paralysis or, or some kind of yeah. issue. And uh, so they believed the root had been put under them, under the house. And so he just sent one of his guys out, snuck it under there. And then he goes out in this big, uh, you know, with his glasses, makes a big production, goes under the house and finds the root. And she, Aha! Here it is! And he takes it and the person magically recovers. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly placebo yep. effect, but at the same time, having the foresight to rather than, you know, listen, this is nonsense. Nobody's, you can't have all this problems. This is just a packet of, no-. he utilized what their beliefs were to, to actually help them. At the end of his term as sheriff, uh, the community even, the Gola community even said that they viewed him as a friend because mm-hmm. many of them saw that in some ways he was trying to help. But you know, other ways he was a product well, the of use time. of subterfuge like that, in, in my understanding, is common worldwide amongst shamanistic practitioners. I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, I've read a lot of, and a friend of yours, Stan Krippner's yes. work, um, and I'd encourage anybody to read anything by Krippner about uh, shamanism, is it is almost like there is a trick needed to get that intention mm-hmm. set. So if I can trick you initially really quick to believe something, that opens or, or lowers the defenses, it gives an opening to maybe I can do other things. So, for example, if uh, a, a root doctor is really good at cold reading, he, he or she may not initially know something spiritual about you. But if they can go in and say, I can tell your grandfather did such and such, and it, and it connects, it opens them up so then they can create that relationship where if there is a spiritual component, they can pull that intention in. But if the person's blocked off and not uh, not open, sometimes there's that trickery opens them up to the process. You, if someone enters into a state of awe or reverence or, or devotion, they may be more open to uh, what as a parapsychologist we call authentic psi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's another thing I pulled to psychology, uh, psychotherapy. Mm. If we can't uh, initiate a feeling of, of openness and uh, awe in our in our clients, or uh, or just the basic idea that you can help. Uh, it, therapy is very limited, mm-hmm. and I think that that's uh, the, the root doctors are the, at least the ones that I've I've uh, researched and interacted with. They're very good at making you feel, even if you're and I was skeptical, but uh, even if you, you're not a believer, they have that quality, almost that. 
charismatic presentation that opens the gateway yeah. for, for later work. Well, Paul, I think your work is very significant in, in the fact that you're looking at the intersection of real magic and yeah. psychotherapy. And yeah. your exploration of the hoodoo tradition is, is one step in that direction. I'm delighted that you're here with me now in Albuquerque because we're going to do a few more interviews talking about uh, some of your other explorations as a psychotherapist uh, uh, working with uh, what I co we'll, we'll call real magic. Yeah. Thanks. Paul, so thank you so much for being with me. Oh, thank you, Jeff. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.